Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is David Finkel. He's the CEO of the Maui Mastermind and co-author of a book called Scale, Seven Proven Principles to Grow Your Business and Get Your Life Back. Uh, co-authored that with Jeff Hoffman. Sounds like a pretty good promise. So, uh, David, thanks for joining me. A pleasure, John. Thank you for having me here. So I started uh, with your business, uh, Maui Mastermind, and just because the name's uh, unique enough, uh, I'd love it if you'd kind of give me a little bit of the backstory of what that is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think like a lot of your listeners, I'm a serial entrepreneur, uh, and I started a company, uh, oh gosh, about uh, 20 years ago. And about five years into that, I partnered up with a couple of people to put on a special one-time only event in Hawaii, a mastermind session for our respective top 1% clients. And um, the event went really well, so well that people asked us to do it. So we turned it into an annual thing. Um, about, maybe about uh, 12, 15 years ago, I sold that other company, but I kept the event. <laughs> and so I built Maui Mastermind as it is today, which is uh, we're one of the premier business coaching companies in North America for companies in the $1 to $20 million per year sales range. Um, based around that. So now it's, it's kind of stayed that way. So we, we're actually going back here in, in about uh, two and a half weeks for the annual event. We've been doing it now for 15 years out there in Hawaii and Maui every year. That's where the name came from. Yeah, well, and I imagine that uh, part of the appeal, I'm sure that the event is awesome, but I'm sure part of the appeal is where you're holding it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to give us a reminder. Sometimes by getting away from a business, whether you're going um, – to an event or whether you're just taking your executive team or just you and, and, and one or two key team members stepping away from your company, it's great to get some, some distance. And I think if you're going to have to get some distance, it's, you know, poor you, once a year you have to do it in Maui. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, your book, Scale, um, I, I think obviously the title or the promise of the title really, it, I, I think, appeals to a lot of folks. I mean, there are a lot of people who start businesses, maybe they build a little team, they get to a certain point because they have the founder has been really good at selling, <laughs> and uh, um, they, they, they really hit this wall, uh, even though they may have this idea of wanting to scale. Um, what are some of the things that you see just time in, time out, you know, what holds people back? What constrains them from doing this idea of scaling? You know, it's such a common pattern. When I wrote Scale with my co-author, Jeff Hoffman, so for those who don't know, Jeff is uh, one of the co-founders of a tiny little travel company that's grown that they might be familiar with called Priceline.com. And so he and I were laughing. I, I build companies and scale them from zero to in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in, in sales. He's done that to the hundreds of billions of dollars in sales. And so it was an interesting to see that we both approached it the same way. And so there's probably two things that cause people to get trapped more than any other. The first is that it works to grow your business by working longer, harder. It does, yep. <laughs> but it creates a, a capsule, a ceiling on that growth. There's a certain point I can go from X to 2X, maybe even 3X by giving up my nights and my weekends, but I can't go to 5X or 10X by working harder. There aren't enough hours. And so you look at the statistics, Harvard Business Review talked about the average business owner or executive working an average of 72 hours a week. Um, U.S. Census Bureau did some, some uh, really wonderful stats on this. 85.1% of business owners are in an owner-reliant uh, company where they're still responsible for a main operational, financial, or sales function in the business. So the stats are against them. And working longer, harder, it works, but only to a point. 
And then the second thing is by working longer, harder, what happens is unintentionally you build the business so it's much more reliant mm-hmm. on you, the owner, or you, the main producer. And so it's much more fragile. You get hurt, business goes under. Um, you get pulled away. I mean, I remember I, I had a company early on, and I got very lucky that I got an offer to sell it before it happened. But my, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. I mean, thankfully, she's, she's well now, and this is many years ago. But the last thing I wanted to think about was that business. Yeah. And I was already partway through a sale process, and so it closed very soon thereafter. But I didn't care about the business at that moment. I cared about my wife. And so the second thing that traps people is they build the business where they want control. And control is a two-edged sword. Yes, it makes you feel empowered as the owner. But the flip side of it is the more you build for personal control where you're making decisions or managing things, um, the more you have to be there attendance-wise at the business daily to make it function. And so we need to be aware of those two things. We need to produce more not by ourselves working hard, but by getting our company, our systems, our team, our internal controls to produce more. And we need to make sure that we empower our key team with the structure of good systems and and sound internal controls so that they can uh, own functions of the business so that the business owner gets a larger span uh, of control and, and so that the business can be freed up to incrementally, bit by bit, wean itself off of the reliance of the owner. Yeah, and I and I read this quote a long time ago, and I, I think it's kind of this classic case of the business owner who has a job versus the entrepreneur who builds a business. Uh, that that the the business owner looks at everything and says, "How do I get all this done?" And the entrepreneur looks at everything and says, "How do I get somebody else to do all of this?" Um, <laughs> and I and I think that that's a pretty clear distinction. Uh, when, yeah. when you get started, uh, obviously you're you're just trying to figure out if this thing's going to go anywhere. Um, do you need, or do you necessarily, um, because in the book you talk about stages, uh, do you necessarily need to have that kind of vision for, I'm, I've got to eclipse each stage by doing X before I can, you know, ultimately end up at the, the where I think my vision is three to five years or something of that nature? It's a great question. So if I'm a solopreneur and I'm kind of just getting started, and, and really what I am is I'm a person that can produce a product or a service myself, and I can sell it myself. And I'll give an example. So Paul Robinson, one of our clients, when I first met him, here's a guy who was an IT consultant, a solopreneur. He was really good at what he did. He gave um, small and mid-cap companies uh, consulting about how to move from one location to another location and transfer all their IT infrastructure over which is a big deal if you're moving, whether it's half a block or half a, half a country away. Right. You, know, you have to move all that infrastructure. And he used to talk about, you know, have laptop, will travel. Well, okay. The very first thing I would say to somebody, the first step is just to make the decision, make it a stated goal of growing your company, that you are, in fact, going to build it so that over time it will be independent of you. The moment you make that decision and you're, and you're courageous enough to actually tell other people involved with it, whether it's one person that works for you or, or 50 people that works for you, work, work for you, what happens is it now frees you up to say, okay, this quarter, what's one simple step I could take that would make this business a little bit less reliant on me? And, and for example, in Paul's case, one of the early steps was he had to find one or two contract IT experts that he could parcel out some of the actual heavy lifting on some of the project work. And at first, that's a negative drain, right? He's paying somebody else a fairly healthy amount um, as a contractor to do some of the, the work. But what it did is it freed him up to do the higher value piece, which for him was the sales and marketing function. 
he still was responsible early on for project management and making sure that they did good quality work. But over the course of three years, here he is today, you know, he's grown sales by about 300 and some odd percent. And the other part to it is he doesn't do any of the direct IT work anymore. He's involved leading the sales and marketing efforts, which is a much higher paid skill set. And then working on, on building his internal team, the systems with them to make sure that they produce the service in a really uh, efficient and high quality standardized way. Yeah, and I think that that well, you just identified what I think is one of the greatest challenges. Uh, Paul, our friend here, probably started that business because he liked doing that work. <laughs> um, but uh, and and so then giving that work up for a lot of business owners is really hard because it's that's that's what they really enjoy. Sales and marketing, not so much maybe. Um, but but again, identifying that high payoff work. I mean, it really is the job of the CEO, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you have to ask yourself, you know, look, if the goal is to build an owner-independent business, what, what does this do? Yeah. You look at the stakeholders here. For your employees, it gives them opportunity to grow, to contribute more, to feel better about it, to perhaps earn more. And bit, most of all, it gives them some security. I mean, there's nothing riskier for an employee than working for a business that completely revolves around one person. Yeah. You know, heaven forbid that person gets hurt, or in the case of my, I talked about my wife, I'm not going to pay attention to the business when those things go on. And other people have livelihoods there. So it, it's in their best interest. It's in your customer's best interest because now they have more stability of the company that they're working with. And for you, the owner, obviously, it's in your best interest as well because you're going to grow it and scale it. So this idea that you know, sometimes business owners get shy. Oh, I'm afraid. What will they think? Well, you know what? They'll think it's a good thing if you frame it as an opportunity for them to have more control, more contribution over time, more earnings, and more stability for them, your staff's going to love it. Yep. It's that point in the show where I'm going to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Magic Jack for Business. It is a really cool new way to do phones. Phoning for a small business, for a salesperson, it's your lifeline. Get an unbeatable phone service. Get the reliability of a phone service for much, much less. Magic Jack for Business is like taking your phones to the cloud. You get state-of-the-art technology, whether you need one line or 50. Check it out at magicjackforbusiness slash duct tape, and you're going to get two free months because you're a listener of mine. And if you're one of the first 100 to sign up, you're going to get a free phone too. So check it out at magicjackforbusiness.com slash duct tape. So uh, let's jump around a little bit because you cover a lot of areas uh, in business. What um, One of the things I want to talk or have you at least outline is, so that person's saying, okay, well, this sounds great. Where do I start? Uh, you've got these four core systems um, that, that you feel like, hey, you've, you've got to get these shored up before you can really start getting exotic. You want to put those out for us? Yeah, absolutely. And so the first two will be familiar for anyone, obviously, in the duct tape marketing world. Why? Because they're sales and marketing functions. So system number one is your system for lead generation. System number two is your generation for lead conversion. As we talk about these, most small businesses, they do this pretty well in terms of generating leads or generating converted lead sales. But they do it in a one-off basis. So I might get pretty good on how I'm doing my uh, my organic SEO placement or I'm getting good with my pay-per-click advertising or my retargeting ads or my, my uh, trade show marketing. But here's my first suggestion for them. Take a little bit of extra effort, 10% of extra effort 
on your most important winning strategies, the, the one or two that are really good on the lead generation side or the key dominant lead conversion uh, mechanism that you have, and start to systematize that. Yeah. Process it out, right? What do you do? Step one, step two, step three. Diagram it out. Write out what do you currently have for the system. And now, when you've got it cataloged, you can ask yourself, what can I do to make this better? How can I refine it? How can I simplify it? But here's the thing. I have got a lot of clients who, when they first get started, it's like they reinvent the wheel every month or every quarter. Um, like they're going back to scratch to do that lead generation or that lead conversion system. If they just take a little bit of effort to, to, to build the floor a little bit higher about what the baseline process is for doing it, the next time they can start with less mental energy. Mm-hmm. And the less attention and mental energy it takes, the more likely you'll do it. The better the process is, the better the result. And then here's the final part here, John. It's easier for me now to staff that down to somebody else in the organization to be responsible for it because they have tools to help them to do that. So that leaves us with two more systems. So we know we have to have lead generation, lead conversion is the first two. The third core system for your business is going to be your system for production, right? How do you produce uh, your product or your service or acquire your product and service and deliver it if you're just a middle person? And then the final one is your system for collecting and your receivables. And for anyone who's dealing with any kind of cash flow issue, and I'm sure that it happens on occasion, two places I would really encourage them to look. One is their pricing. Generally speaking, a small business should raise their prices. Uh, generally, <laughs> yes. uh, they're, they're too low. But the other is the collection side, having a good process whereby I collect on the money that's owed to me. And it makes a real difference cash flow-wise. Yeah, and you know what I love about that? Um, when you get serious about that position, you actually build it into your lead conversion process, or at least you talk about it and you tell them how this is how we expect to be paid. And I think that that, that posture is so much more positive, so much more about, you know, this is what I expect of you, this is what you expect of me. Um, and, and that's who gets paid, uh, quite, you know, in my experience, that's, that's who gets paid first. Absolutely. You know, we're working with a company right now. They're a $27 million a year distributor for a particular type of construction product. And uh, we just started with them. And I remember having this conversation with Ken, who runs the company. And his comment was he's got two clients of his that buy two customers, and they buy about a million dollars total per year. So they're a fairly hefty customer of his $27 million of revenue. Um, and they're over it one year behind on the receivable. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's a long time to keep that with them. I, I've asked him, I said, do you, do you have promissory note with them for the money that you're carrying? Do you have a personal guarantee? Do you have any kind of lien or a UCC filing for the money that they owe you? Or any of these other practical steps that we would suggest that you yeah. do? Yeah. None of that. Wow. And, and, and ouch, that, that might be half a year's profit if you were to lose on those receivables because one of those customers goes belly up. Well, not to so mention, absolutely important to do. Not to mention the $50,000 or so that he's lost in carrying that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> absolutely even if he does true, get paid, right? Yeah. Um, so, all right, so we get those four core systems figured out, and, and so now we kind of want to start moving in the directions that are going to make the most sense. How do you help people figure out what those priorities are? Because, you know, I've done a lot of these kind of planning sessions and they come out with a list of 27 things that we need to prioritize, you know, and, and, and everybody knows that means nothing is going to get done. You know, how do you help people create just that handful of things to do next? Absolutely. We call it focusing on your fewer better, John. And I'll give them one tool right now. This is covered in in both uh, scale and if they also want to get a copy of Build a Business, Not a Job, our third edition just came out and it also has it in there. But here's the idea. We know we, we can't do everything. 
So our choice of which fewer things make a bigger difference is going to be really a high leverage decision. So we call it the sweet spot analysis. And here's an easy tool. So each of your listeners right now, I want you to think about in your business, what's the single biggest limiting factor currently to growth? Is it we need more leads or is it we've got plenty of leads, but we don't have enough sales capacity or um, we have plenty of leads, plenty of sales capacity, but we can't take on any more clients because we don't have the uh, operational capacity to fulfill on any more service. We, you know, if, if they're a marketer, we don't have any more room to take on another client for a monthly uh, a client on a fee-based system where we're doing their marketing for them because we don't have enough consultants who can do the work or whatever that might be. So you, you narrow down what's the one limiting factor. And then you ask yourself, okay, what are 10 plus ways that I could push this limiting factor back? I brainstorm 10, 20 ways. And so now you've got that proverbial list of all these things you could do. I don't want to do 20 things. I want to do one or two things that will make the biggest difference. So I use two filters. The first filter is I look at every possible solution on my list and I go through filter number one, which is the low-hanging fruit filter. And I ask, idea one, is that a low-hanging fruit? And low-hanging fruit means, is it easy to do with a high likelihood of working? And if it is, I put a little LH by it. And I go through, is this a low-hanging fruit? Is this a low-hanging fruit to every item in that list? Then I pause and go back in a second separate pass through the list. And I ask, filter two, is this a home run? Idea one, is this a home run? Home run means as if it works, we'll produce a really big result. We'll move the needle. And so if it does, I put a little HR by it. Or if they want to use the fancy PDF tool, they can, they can get it on our site and it, they can check the box. But when I'm done, out of those 20 ideas, there are going to be probably four or five or six that are low-hanging fruit, four or five or six that are home runs, and probably one to three that are both a low-hanging fruit and a home run. And those are your sweet spot. By definition, they're saying, hey, these are easy to do with a high likelihood of working, and as a home run, it's going to have a big result. And what it does is it lets me narrow the list. And, and so if I end up with you know, four sweet spots, I don't have to do all four. Any of those four are going to be good to do, which leads me to my last comment here. Less is more. I'd rather do fewer things really well than try to do a whole bunch of things but only do them partially. Um, and so I would choose one or two, just the amount that you actually have the capacity to get done. If you're a larger company and can staff some of it out, fine, go after three or four. But if it's just you choosing one or two of these ideas to implement, and then 90 days later you can ask the question again. Yeah, and, and one of my favorite things about an exercise like that is it also makes it – it starts making it easier to know what to say no to because uh, I think that's that's one of the greatest uh, frustrations and challenges for a lot of business owners. They just get sucked into the whirlwind, and they if they don't know what they're focused on, then it's very hard to say what they're not focused on. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's move to another topic then that is, I think, very related. So we're talking about building out these systems, and, and we all know that takes a little extra effort to begin. You know, the payoff is huge. But some people feel like, gosh, I don't even have that time. I mean, how, how do you know? How do I move some of the things off my plate so that I can put these new things on my plate? And I know you do a lot of talking uh, um, and, and coaching around the ways people are wasting time. So, what are what are maybe some of the things that you that you found to to free up capacity for somebody that says, I want to do this, but I don't know how? Yeah. Well, it's coming up two different ways. So functionally. And for someone who's looking for more detail, this would be Chapter 8 of Scale, and I believe it's Chapter 4 of Build a Business, Not a Job, 3rd Edition. But the functional part here 
is the tool we call your UBS, the system of all your systems. And so the first step would just be to stop and to get clear on how would I break my current business down into five to seven functional areas. And then I just, you know, whether I use Dropbox or Google or Ignite or one of these other cloud-based file sharing systems, I'm going to create five, six, seven file folders. And inside each of these, I'm going to have one for my sales marketing, one for my operations, one for my HR, one for my leadership. And so I, I, I just break it down that way. Then I start with one folder. Uh, for example, I might choose that my biggest need right now is to organize my uh, operational area. Great. What are the five to seven subfolders that I would have? I might have production, and I might have um, administration, and I might have technology. And you know, I'll come up with my own list that, that fit my business. And then the next step after this, I say, okay, what systems do we already have? What Word docs that describe this? What PDF worksheets? What Excel spreadsheets do we already have that help us perform this function? And I'm going to transfer that into that folder and subfolders. And as I'm doing it, here's the most important tip I can share with your listeners. The reason why this wins or loses, fails or succeeds, is how you name your files. Um, if your team can't find the system that you created or that they, their peer created within 60 seconds, they're going to give up and they'll create their own version of it. And when they do that, now that new version will be um, not shared with the rest of your team. And when they walk out the door and they leave, it's gone. <laughs> it won't be centralized. So the naming should be done so that someone could effectively Google the folder to find the document, the spreadsheet, the video clip that they want to find. And so take a little bit of time to name your files, not to store, but name your files for how you plan to search to retrieve them later with some standard naming conventions. And it works so well with that. And that's a simple way to get started. And my last comment there is you don't have to be the one doing it. Quite frankly, a lot of our business owner clients are the worst person to do this stuff. They're sales marketing people. They're, they're incredibly good at generating uh, new revenue, new, new ideas but they're not someone who's going to be really good on following through with this type of uh, uh, detail-oriented, process-oriented stuff. So you might have Tina in your office be responsible for this and wonderful. Let her read the chapter of the book and do it for you. And then in terms of freeing up, well, I'll, I'll pause there for a moment. Well, I was going to uh, say, John, we, we, we actually have a lot of success just, you know, whoever operates the system, you know, document it. Um, you know, we may collaborate or meet on it, but, you know, that person, as they're going through the steps, just note what are the 10 steps you took to get that process done. And, you know, then we can come back and talk about making it better or who owns it and all that kind of thing. But, but that's another great way to sort of parcel, you know, some of the system creation out. And I, and I also, you know, I've... You know, my whole premise is, uh, you know, duct tape marketing is we install a marketing system. So, I mean, I've for, for two decades now been, been, you know, preaching this word of, of documenting and system, systemizing your, your marketing. Um, and one of the things that we find when people really get the religion and want to do this is that uh, you, you kind of have to say, well, you know, this isn't like today's project to do all of, <laughs> all of this that – um, that, that maybe let's identify the eight or 10 that are going to make the most difference uh, and then, you know, start going to work. You don't have to document everything, you know, on the, the first day that you decide that's what you want to do, I think. <laughs> I love that idea and that philosophy because if you do try to document everything up front, what you'll end up with is a policies and procedures manual. Right. And the moment you write it, it'll be out of date. Yeah. The moment you write it, it'll be worthless because no one's going to refer back to it. Yeah. You know, 30 days past the point of hire, no one looks at a policies and procedures manual. And the, and the less people use it, the more out of date it becomes, which means it's less likely that they'll use it in the future. Yeah. 
your, your systems, really what we're giving here is a, is a framework so that your systems become a living, breathing part of the company. You'll, you'll create, you'll edit, you'll refine over time. And I loved your idea here, which is we don't need to create this overnight. We, we can take this quarter just to organize one folder with what we have. Next quarter, maybe we say what one or two systems would be most valuable for us to add this entire quarter. I mean, even starting that small, bit by bit, block by block, system by system, 24 months later, one of the areas of your business is much better run than it was two years prior. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking with David Finkel, he is the CEO of Maui Mastermind and the author of Scale. And we're going to have the links uh, not only to Maui Mastermind, but we'll also have the links to the free book that uh, that uh, David mentioned as well. So, David, this was great. Um, I know we could I could at least uh, have this discussion for uh, quite some time, and uh, I really encourage uh, folks, listeners, to uh, to check out Maui Mastermind. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll end up getting to, to Maui one of those times when you're over there. I appreciate that, John. It's been a pleasure joining you today. <laughs>